We are at an inflection point in the story through the Bible and in the life of the church today. So this is exciting. We this year have been looking through the Bible. Uh, we've been going from beginning Genesis 1, and today we reach the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. So congratulations. Some of you have never been through the Old Testament before, and if you've been with us this year, you've had at least a flyover. I would say not 30,000 feet, not 5,000 feet, maybe 10,000 feet. We've been uh, flying over at a rapid pace. There's a lot we've missed, but there's a lot that we've seen. We have seen, for instance, how the world began and how it went wrong. And we've understood this, right? How God created the world as good and beautiful, but how we ruined the world through sin. Uh, it's like if uh, Shar and I are looking at real estate, we're looking at uh, beautiful new places. The other day, uh, went to a beautiful new place. It'd be like if we took it, you know, like this is nice, the real estate agent, agent is there, and we took out a hammer and started whacking the walls. That's Genesis 3, what happened? We took God's gift of a beautiful new world, and we destroyed it. But then we've seen God had a rescue plan to save this world and his people. You have to ask yourself, if you were a landlord, and you rented out your place, and you got new tenants, you came back six months later just to see how things are doing, and they trashed the place. Like there were holes in the walls, the glass that, uh, the beautiful glass in the shower they'd shattered. You know, the tiles were, uh, hadn't been, what would you do? Well, I would say like, what's the legal steps we need to take to get these guys out? Well, what did God do? God by grace said, I am not done with you. You've trashed my world but I'm going to rescue the world. I'm going to renew the world. And so it's amazing. We see God choose Abraham. Why Abraham? One word, grace. He was an idol worshiper, and God chose Abraham, said, I do you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Not because, in fact, he uh, messes up, but God chooses him. We read the story of how God uh, continued working with Abraham's family in despite all the ways they messed up. So I don't know about you, but uh, I don't know if like, those of you who are husbands or wives or whatever. You know, if, 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 I, if somebody hit on my wife and I was like, you know what? Uh, it was a big guy that could beat me up. I was like, she's actually my sister. Like, here, have her. <laughs> and then, like, that would not be good, right? And then if... Josiah got married, and he repeated the pattern. Like, that's not my wife, my sister, go for it. You would think, that is a messed up family. Uh, and yet God chooses to work through this family by sheer grace, a family that struggles. God builds them. Uh, they get into slavery. God rescues them from slavery. And even then, they rebel against God, and God does not give up on them. We've seen how God gave them a land, how he established a kingship. Probably the high point was when David became king. It's like finally good king. But the nation kept on rebelling. Even David messed up. No matter how many chances God gave them, they kept on repeating the rebellion. And he sent them into exile ultimately because of their determination to disobey him. You know, a lesson that if we persist in rebelling against God, God will give us what we want. Uh, if we say, God, I want nothing to do with you. I want to choose my own way. I reject you. God will not, God does not force us into loving him and obeying him. God will let us have what we want and it will be miserable. So that's what Israel 
God. They're like, God, we want our own way. We want to do it our own way. We don't want to do your way. God's like, you've got it. And they go into exile. It was horrible. What a ride. That's the Old Testament. That's like, what I just said in three minutes is a story of the Old Testament. That's the story so far. And let me tell you, this is so crucial for understanding this world. If you were here today, if you're not a Christian, there was a time when Northrop Fry and other academics in, at the University of Toronto, you can still look up Northrop Fry books. Northrop Fry just said, you need to understand the Bible to understand society. Like, even if you don't believe it, this is the history that informs so much of the way that our culture is today. I would go further to say, you need to understand this, not just to understand Western society, but actually to understand the world. This gives us so much information about why the world is the way it is, why we are the way we are, and just the way the world operates, who God is. But today's an inflection point. Uh, for four weeks, we've been talking about the exile. The exile is when God kicks them out of the land in 586 BC, 587 BC, the southern nation was attacked by Babylon, a major world power at the time. Thousands were slaughtered. Survivors were driven from their homes. They were forced to live in the Babylonian empire far from home. Imagine if somebody killed your family. Imagine if somebody trashed your city, completely destroyed your city. And then imagine if they took you to their land and said, you're one of us now, like blend in. You're like, you just killed my family. You just destroyed my city. Imagine knowing as well, I'm living among these people, but it's because God had enough of my wickedness. So today is, uh, we spent four weeks in the exile. Today marks a turning point. Finally, good news, satisfying news, but also unfinished business that I want to share with you. So first, good news. Here's the good news. We're right at the end of, the Old Testament, here's the good news. God is committed to his people. God is committed to his people. I love what Steffi read for us today. Things have been bad for a long time. A guy called Ezra writes a book, and here's how the book begins. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he makes this announcement that the Lord... Right away, you're like, what is happening? The king of Persia is talking about the Lord, not talking about the Persian God. He's like, no, Israel's God, the Lord, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. You're like, that is amazing. And he says, and he's charged me, the king of Persia, to build a house in Jerusalem. And he sends Israel back. And not only does he send Israel back, but he gives them all kinds of money and riches to build the house that is in Jerusalem. I was talking to Godfrey and Blessy uh, this week. The British, uh, I have a British passport. The British have taken a lot of stuff from a lot of countries. If you go to London, you can go to the British Museum and you can see many valuable things from India. They have not returned those things to India to this day. And yet here the king of Persia is, here it is. Take it back, it's yours. Take it and build the house of the Lord again. So here's the good news. God is committed to his people. Israel and Judah gave God every reason to turn his back on them. And yet God always keeps his covenant 
promises. His promises could be trusted back then, just like his promises can be trusted now. God shows mercy and grace to his people, and he refuses to let them go. Friends, a lot of us are, uh, have had ups and downs in our Christian life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's many of us that uh, have been through episodes where we've made the wrong choices. We've gone exactly the wrong way. As we looked earlier, God, if you want to go the wrong way, God will let you go. And yet, God is relentlessly committed to his people. Uh, God does not turn his back on his people. Just when you think you've wandered so far from God that God's like, I'm done with this person, God relentlessly chases after his people. He will not let them go. Jeremiah 29, it says, uh, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. And then these words that are twisted out of context, some of you maybe have them on a coffee mug or hanging on a wall. Hear them in the context of the exile, of them wandering far from God. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now hear it in the context. That's not saying God's plans for you are, he's going to give you a great condo and an amazing job and a great career. No, what the context is, when you are there basically like making rude gestures at God and um, going your own way, God's like, I am committed to you. I know the plans I have for you. You can run as far as you want. I'm coming after you. I, I have plans to prosper you. I have plans to bring you back to me. I will not let you go. Here's what God said, continue. He says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. When I was a kid, I was in a church, and there was somebody who committed his life to Christ, and then he disappeared. He fell off the map, and uh, turns out later he partying, like all kinds of crazy stuff, like wild stuff. And eventually he came back to church and he said, uh, I'm so sorry, I lost my way. I want God, like I, I repent, I made mistakes, I'm back. And I remember he stood in front of the church and he just explained, man, I am so sorry, I want God back. I want to return to God. And I remember I was sitting there, I was a kid. I was so moved by God, the evidence of God's grace in this life. And then I remember the reaction, people standing up saying, how do we know you're not going to do it again? Like, how can we trust you when you've already blown it? Can I just tell you today, that's not how God reacts when we come back to him. God is not there saying, God is there saying, welcome. Like, I never gave up on you. I am, welcome back. And you're there, like, I love the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal comes back, and he's like, maybe, like, I can sleep in the, like outer limits, like maybe, and the father just comes running out with open arms. Friends, God is committed to his people. I want you to hear today, God is committed to you. Your hope is not your ability to obey God. If our hope was our ability to obey God, we would be in big trouble. What is our hope? Our hope is God's commitment to us. Our hope is, as somebody said, uh, you know, I, I hope my strength is uh, strong enough that I can hold on to God, that I can never let him go. 
And the response was, that is not your hope. Your hope is not your strength in holding on to God. Your hope is God's strength in holding on to you. His grip is a lot stronger. He will not let you go. God is committed to his people. If you've trusted, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying live like you want, but here's what I'm saying. Uh, Continue to pursue him. Continue to love God with your heart. But remember that your hope is not in your ability to do that. Your hope is in him. He has bound himself to his people. He will not let you go. He will not turn back on his promises. They never fail. You can trust his promises and you can trust him. The other reason I love this is not only is God committed to his people, but God is actually able to control history to accomplish his purposes. I love the fact that God stirs up the king of Persia. What I love even more than that, by the way, Isaiah 40 verse 15 says the nations are like a drop in the bucket. When I go camping, we have this big uh, water jug and we take it. This is like my workout when I, one of the workouts, like camping is a workout in itself. Everything is hard work. We go to the tap and you turn it on and it comes like full blast out, like water everywhere. And you're holding up this thing, filling it up, and then you got to carry it to your uh, camping site. Anybody ever done this before? I don't know about you, but the water comes spurting out. And even carrying it back, there's water sloshing all over the place and coming out of the thing. And then if you're lucky, when you get back, there's some water left for you to drink or do dishes or whatever. God says the nations are like the drop that falls off as you're carrying a drop in the bucket. The biggest nation in the world is just like, oh, like, look at that, a bit of water, let's keep going. Like, they're nothing to him. God is able to change history. What I love about this, two centuries before, 200 years before Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, 28, had prophesied this would happen and actually mentioned the name of Cyrus. Think about that, 200 years earlier, Isaiah had actually said this would happen. And not only did God fulfill this 200 years later, but actually uh, Cyrus was motivated to give them all, like basically what England hasn't done, God motivated Cyrus to do. Take the stuff back, like use it for God. God is relentlessly committed to people. God is so committed to you that he can actually change countries to serve his people. God can actually change the course of history to serve his people. We do not need to be afraid. God is committed to his people. That's a really good news. By the way, the Old Testament has been a lot of ups and downs. I have to say that there's been more downs than ups. This is a really big up, right? At the end of all the downs of God's people disobeying him, at the end of the Old Testament, you see God's relentless commitment to us. But here's the second thing we see. That's the good thing. Here's the satisfying thing. God's people respond. God's people respond. Here's where it gets even more satisfying. Not only do the people return, but lots of good things happen. I wish I had time to go through all of them. Uh, Ezra 3, if you follow the reading this week, I think you'll like this week. Ezra 3, the ne- this is the next two weeks. So Ezra rebuilds the altar They begin offering sacrifices to God again. They begin rebuilding the temple. This is a big project. It actually comes in fits and starts. They start, they stop, it's complicated. In Ezra 6, after 15 years, they complete rebuilding the temple. Here's the sad part. The people 
who remembered the previous temple see the new temple and they cry because it's not anywhere as good as the old temple, but it's there. They celebrate the Passover again. In Nehemiah, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So again, Jerusalem had been destroyed. Now they have their defenses back. All of this is amazing. God has not only returned his people, but they get to rebuild everything. But the favorite thing for me that happens is in Ezra 7 to 9. Because what happens in Ezra 7 is that God restores God's word to his people. Uh, In Ezra 7, hear this, Ezra had set in his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so Ezra gets up and he starts teaching people, listen to what God has revealed. In Nehemiah 8, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book originally. In Nehemiah 8, we read more about Ezra's ministry. Hear this, imagine this. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women. Pause there, that's actually an important detail. For all the uh, teaching, people teach that uh, the Bible is uh, against women. Notice here that it wasn't like women stay at home. This is a men's thing. Men and women gathered together, men and women both together seeking God, pursuing God together, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate, from early morning till midday. It gets hot there. In the presence of the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra's preaching, and men and women are there in the heat of midday saying, give us more, this is amazing, we love this. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and all the people, as he opened it, all the people stood And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I would have loved to have been there. Picture, like, not only did God restore Israel, but the people are there saying, give us God's word. I was at a Jays game the other night. We didn't see this, but have you ever been to the Jays game or some public place, and uh, somebody arranges a proposal? And on the jumbotron, that's like the guy has arranged it before and the camera's there and he gets on his knees and he proposes to the woman. I assume it's the guy proposing to the woman. It doesn't have to be, but picture that. You know, the story's only complete when the woman, you know, we've all seen, I think if you go on YouTube, failed proposals, you've seen (laughs) like, will you marry me? And everybody's there, ah, and this is so romantic. And she gets up and slaps him in the face and (laughs) walks away. Picture, though, like this is satisfying, right? God has restored his people. How are God's people going to respond? Well, as God initiates, God's the initiator here. God's the one saying, I'm committed to you. Like, I will not give up on you. How will God's people respond? Well, in Nehemiah 8, they're like, God, yes. Whatever you say, like every word, yes. Our hearts are for you, Lord. They... Ezra stands and reads God's word for seven days. What are you doing this week? Like, the revival that just took place in Asbury, the stories of, like, they just started, somebody got up and preached, and at the end of it, it's like, okay, we're dismissed. The sermon was mediocre, and at the end of it, people are like, we're not leaving. And then for day after day, people are there, like, seven days They celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. They remember God's 
faithfulness in the wilderness. They confess their sins. They renew their covenant with God. They promise to obey him. They celebrate the finished walls of Jerusalem. This is a high point indeed. You know, it's really good news when God is committed to his people. But you know what I love to see? I love to see when God's people realize God's commitment to them. And it's a beautiful thing when they respond and get a vision of God's grace and treasure his word. I love watching God's people turn to him again and again. Let me speak to you guys, church. You know what I really want for this church? You know what I pray for and dream for for this church? I pray that this is a church that realizes God's commitment to his people and just responds with amazement at his grace. I want, as we gather here every week, for us just to come saying, we can't get over the fact that he's chosen us. Like, how good is God that he's committed to us? I would love to hear that this is a church that when we come together, when somebody gets up and opens the word of God, that there's just this hush that falls on everyone. When we say this is God's holy word, and you know that part at the end, thanks be to God. I long for that to be like, not just a, root, a, root, a routine thing, a rote thing, but like, praise God. Like, what will we do without his word? Man, I pray that this is a church that grows in its love for God, that when people come in, they might say, uh, Jameson doesn't even know where the offering box is, the live stream's not working, uh, the, we had to restart a song, but God is worshipped here. Like, these people love God. Daryl was a bit off today, whatever. This is a church that loves the Lord, that treasures God's word, that responds in repentance and worship. This week I asked a friend, give me some advice in my ministry. We're over Thai food. I was like cornering him. I warned him before. I'm like, yeah, you, you, need to, you need to give me a speech. You need to remind me what's important. And so over Pad Thai, it's like, dude, like, this is it. Like, and he looks at me and he says, two words, like two pieces of advice. Preach God's word, live by God's word. Friends, I pray that this is a church that preaches God's word and lives by God's word, that treasures and delights in the grace of God, that responds to God in worship and repentance. So would you pray this for me? Would you pray this for Liberty Grace? Would you pray that we're a church that never loses its amazement of Jesus and what he's done for us? Ask God to give us a high regard for the scriptures and the strength to love and worship him. The good news is, as Ezra's showing us, God's committed to his people. God brings them back. The satisfying news is that God's people respond and say, God, we're treasuring your word. Like, we're responding. This is amazing. God, we love you, and we're worshiping you. Are you ready for the bad part? Okay. The good news, God's committed to his people. The satisfying news, God's people are like, yes. You knew there had to be a bad part, right? Here's the unfinished business as you get to the end of the Old Testament. You got good news, really good news. Don't lose sight of that. You're going to need it in a minute. You got the satisfying news. Here's the unfinished business. At the end of Nehemiah, God's people fail. At the end of Nehemiah, 
which is the end of the Old Testament. I know it's in the middle of your Bible. It's actually at the end of the events of the Old Testament. God's people fail. Man, I've really enjoyed this sermon so far. God's committed to you. It's a beautiful thing when we respond to God in worship. It's amazing. God is so good. It's good when we're good. It doesn't happen very often. It's good when we get it right. It's good when we come to church and it's like, man, we really love God. But today we get to the end of the story of the Old Testament and things do not end well. Despite God returning the people to Israel, despite his commitment to his people, despite revival, God brings them revival. (sighs) I wish that Nehemiah 13 wasn't part of the story. Nehemiah 13, uh, this is like the funky end to the story. So God's returned the people, they've rebuilt everything. Ezra leads this amazing worship service. Revival has broken out. God's people love God's word. A week of standing there listening to God's word. People saying, amen, amen. Nehemiah comes and takes a tour of Jerusalem. Here's what he discovers. And by the way, it's not a pretty picture. Nehemiah 13 will give you fits as you read this. Nehemiah discovers some people haven't kept their covenant vows. He discovers there's some people who reneged on every promise they've made. And he does a little tour of the city. Here's what he finds. The temple is being misused. There's a lack of financial support for the temple. The temple priests are abandoning their posts because there's not enough money to pay them. They have to eat to live. And so they're like farming fields so they have enough money to live. He finds the Sabbath being broken. And he finds intermarriage with people who don't believe in God. So he finds like, uh, it's not like racial intermarriage is wrong. But what he discovers is they're intermarrying idol worshipers. So they have split allegiance. They're saying, like, uh, the, guy, the guys or the women are like, we're all for God. And their spouses are like, well, I'm for this God. I'm for this idol. I'm for this. And he finds these problems. Despite all of God's commitment to his people, despite returning them to the land, despite their revival, despite them treasuring God and his word, they still hadn't changed. Nehemiah ends as with a bit of a downer. The end of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is actually pulling out people's hair in frustration. I don't recommend that as, like, when you guys hire a pastor, like, do not hire somebody who goes around, like, frustrated and pulling out people's hair. Not a good idea. You're there at the end of Nehemiah going, like, wait a minute, I thought Nehemiah was a hopeful book. I thought Nehemiah was a good dude. And at the end of Nehemiah, he's finding all these problems and pulling out people's hair. What in the world? At the end of the book of Nehemiah, which is at the end of the Old Testament, right when things are cresting again, you're like, finally, happily ever after, things begin to sink again. Around this time, a guy comes along, his name is Malachi. You might know him because it's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi has a message for the people. You're like, okay, the end of the story, this is going to be good. What does Malachi say? This is going to be deja vu all over again. Malachi says, priests, you're not serving God. You're leading people astray. He talks to the people. He says, you guys are treating each other faithlessly, including your marriages. Husbands, you aren't loving your wives. You guys are profaning the temple. This is supposed to be a place of worship for God. You're not giving. You're not giving materially to the Lord. You're not giving the money that you owe to him. 
And then the curtain drops on the Old Testament. Like, oh, I thought things were going good. Good news is God has committed to his people. The satisfying news, they're responding. You get to the end of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah's like, you guys are messing up. He's pulling out their hair. And then Malachi's like, you guys are blowing it. And then silence for 400 years. But before the curtain drops, Malachi ends in the last chapter of our Bibles in the Old Testament with these words. This is how Malachi ends. This is like intermission. This is like act one is over, the curtain drops. Malachi's last words are this. In the end of chapter four, near the end of Malachi four, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Here's what Malachi says. Malachi has been railing at them saying, guys, guys, come on. But then he's at the end before the curtain drops, there's silence for 400 years. He says, there's hope. Don't get me wrong. He says, if you guys don't turn around, God will judge. But here's the hope. He will send a prophet who will prepare the way for the coming of the day of the Lord. And it's going to change everything. God tells him to look forward. There's going to be a day when God himself comes. Look for the moment when the prophet will come to prepare the way. Look forward to the day that God will restore covenant faithfulness to his people. As good as the story of the Old Testament gets, it doesn't get good enough. If there's anything the Old Testament teaches us, it's like even when things get good, it's not good enough. There's a limit to what we can do until Jesus comes. Like, the best, here's a message. The best it gets without Jesus is far from good enough. You get to the end of the Old Testament and you're like, oh, even the best is disappointing. But Malachi ends and says, but things are going to change. There's somebody coming who's going to change everything. Friends, God is committed to his people. It is amazing when God's people respond. God's people, though, will continue to fail, but hope is coming. In two weeks, God willing, Pete Blundell will be here and pretend the next two weeks are like 400 years. In two weeks, Pete is going to come up and say, there was a man sent by God. His name was John. And he said, I'm preparing the way for Jesus. 400 years from now, we'll see the one that Malachi talked about. Our only hope, as good as things get, it never gets good enough without him. His name is Jesus. Friends, my prayer for this church is, would you know God's commitment to you? God will never let you go. God will not let you go. Friends, my prayer for this church is, as you open God's word week after week, I pray that you would just cling to it and say, more, I want more of God's word. I need God's word. My prayer, though, is whenever we screw up that we'll realize it only gets as good as Jesus. Without Jesus, there's no hope with him. There's all kinds of hope. It's all about him. Thank you, Father, for your commitment to your people.
My prayer is that you would not let us go. Lord, we give you every reason for you to let us go. I pray. You are faithful. I pray that we would cling on to your commitment to us. Father, I pray for us that you would give us hearts to respond. Would you make this church one that treasures you and your word? I pray that you would make this a church that responds in worship and repentance to what you reveal. And Lord, I pray when we fail that you would turn our eyes towards Jesus yet again. Lord, this is my prayer for this church with great gratitude for the privilege of serving her. May the story continue, and may it all be about Jesus, we pray. Amen.